0: I, um, for years, tried to explain or understand within myself, what is this infertility grief? Because we had been to four specialists, we had done every type of imaging, surgery, like everything, we had done it all. Chinese medicine, acupuncture, everything. And they had not found a single reason why for 11 years we were not able to have a pregnancy or to have children. And so it was so strange. I think if you have a definitive answer, maybe you can move away from that shock and be like, okay, this is my reality. You grieve, You it's a death and you move away. And for us, we were given just it was always like actually you should try this because it makes no sense actually you should try this like it was just so strange so we just went through years with no answer so it's this gray
1: that's shanda Bosch, and this is the stories that brought you here a podcast dedicated to the stories of the people living in and around the salish sea i'm your host chris wackel it's my pleasure to get to sit down in conversation to hear about the pivotal and life-changing stories that brought people to the point that they're at in their lives right now Shanda was born in Peace River, Alberta, and spent a lot of her childhood outdoors. She developed an interest in music in her youth, and she would find her musical talents would flourish while working in isolation at a fire lookout tower in remote Alberta during her early 20s. Shanda will go into detail about how her path in music was encouraged by certain people along the way. She'll also tell the pretty remarkable story about meeting her husband, Dan, And she will talk about their shared 11-year journey together of trying to become pregnant. We spend a lot of time talking about this, and Shanda goes in-depth describing the grief of infertility that she suffered, but also about the lessons that she learned along the way, which was pretty amazing to hear Shanda's perspective. And she was incredibly open and articulate about how that whole process had unfolded for her over that time as well i mentioned earlier that she worked in a remote fire lookout tower in alberta which was something that i did as well too so shanda and i went in depth into exploring life in a lookout tower which was pretty fun for me to get to do it's a pretty unique and life-changing experience that we spoke at length about in this interview so i think you will enjoy listening to that All that and more coming up, but before we get started, there's something I'd like to share with you, and that is about a service that I'm providing to help people record their oral history. Through doing this podcast over the last five years or so, I've heard a lot of people tell me that they wish they would have recorded a grandparents' or parents' story, but never did. I personally think that having a loved one's oral history recorded is something absolutely invaluable, and therefore I created an easy way for people to be able to do that. If you would like to record your own or a family members' life history, personal reflections, lessons learned, family history, life experiences, and anything else you'd like to share is preserved for future generations to cherish, this could be of interest to you. These recordings are in a monologue style and can be as long as you would like. If you're at all curious about this, you can email me at myaudiomemoir@outlook.com. at Once again, that's myaudiomemoir@outlook.com. at outlook.com. And I'd be happy to let you know about how to get started on this. So thank you very much for listening to that. Now it's time to say first a little bit of music and then my interview with Shanda Bosch.
0: And then, uh, so yeah, if you need to go to the bathroom at any point, okay. or if the phone rings, pause. or like... I turned my cell phone off, so
1: okay, yeah, be good, but uh, don't feel bad about getting up for anything and okay. is there anything else oh yeah right and if you do say anything that you're like whoa
0: i'm like actually i shouldn't have said that yeah <laughs> okay
1: like we have vampire blood in our family and ancestry and i was like oh my gosh shannon it's amazing and
0: i'll be like shoot i wasn't supposed to say that yeah i was sworn in a pact of
1: i'll edit that out people won't know it'll be good
0: that's awesome yeah
1: anyways and then this is the awkward part getting started thanks
0: for having me i'm so excited i like your what you're doing so much thank you i love it You've needed to have me for a long time, Chris. Like, what the heck? Just I don't know kidding. what the heck.
1: It, it <laughs> finally happened. It finally happened. It's a Sunday. We're middle of May right now. May
0: long weekend, Sunday. Woohoo!
1: May long weekend. Beautiful, beautiful weather. May long weekend. It is so beautiful. Yeah. What Thank have you gosh. been doing this weekend so far?
0: Uh, we've been working on our boat because we're going to sell it and working on the baby room. Baby Getting room. The baby room. Okay, because... Tip-top shape.
1: Okay. How's it coming?
0: Oh, it's so beautiful. It's great. But it always takes longer than you think. So, you know, Danny's, he's got an endless list of things on a weekend that he wants to accomplish. <laughs> it's quite unrealistic, you know, this is how it is. So you dive into whatever you can and we'll get there.
1: Yeah. What's, uh, is there a feature of the baby broom that uh, stands out right now? or is Um,
0: it... well, Danny was really adamant, like all sort of just natural wood everywhere. Mm-hmm. So uh, fur, all fur, anything that he's like built shelves and he's done cute stairs and he's done bookshelves and and like little we we found pieces of dead arbutus from our neighbors had a tree that fell and so we've created sort of what looks like a little like a little forest around the sides of the bed and it's kind of a little loft bed
1: and it's really fun cool when when is your baby due
0: september 1st
1: all right I know. Excited, obviously. So excited. So
0: excited. Yeah, a little nervous. Like we were talking earlier about the sausage hands and feet for the rest of the summer.
1: Yeah. Turkey sausage figures. Yeah, I think that's what we feet. figured. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. uh well, I mean, it's uh it's a lovely thing being pregnant, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It says the guy who has I know. never had a chance in no. his life to be pregnant.
0: <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you um you can be empathetic. I'm sure you could. You can put yourself in a sausagey foot woman, you know. I'm there. Your shoes.
1: <laughs> totally right now. It's like none of my shoes fits. Like <laughs> yeah. trying to put some gloves on. No.
0: Pants don't fit. Yeah. Yeah. That's really putting yourselves in my shoes.
1: Gosh darn it. It's tough being pregnant, it looks like. No, it's awesome. It's awesome being pregnant, it it's looks awesome like. Awesome being
0: pregnant. Yeah. Okay. I'm in the little middle stage. So I am not sick and I can still sleep. So I'm just enjoying it. It's like a little mini honeymoon in the middle. Wait. So ask me in a couple more months. I might be really cranky. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Before I even yeah, get like, it You out. were so
0: happy. Remember when we did the interview? I'll be like, fuck all Chris. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Okay, we'll see how that goes in two months from now. We'll try that. I'm looking forward to that reaction. Uh, okay, so the traditional first question we always get to on this yeah. podcast, of course, is what brought you to Pender Island, Shanda?
0: Pender Island. Well, I was reading an, a journal entry and my parents moved here in sort of the mid 2000s. And my dad was a prairie boy who was obsessed with sailing, like obsessed, no reason, didn't know why. And him and my mom bought a sailboat and they moved out to Pender. And so we came to visit them, we would come to visit them. And we loved Pender, but we were always really nervous about living on a small island with my family. (laughs) So truth is we looked everywhere else. But We kind of looked between Dan's entire family's in Alberta. My parents were in BC, and we thought eventually if we have a family, we've watched friends move to be near a set of parents. And so we kind of went west coast, Edmonton. Uh, It's not a hard one. Um, So we stayed on Pender and then looked everywhere else. So we like went and looked everywhere. Duncan, we were in Victoria and we looked in just everywhere because we were like, it's too small an island. And then every time we would catch the ferry back onto Pender, we're like, we love Pender. Who are we kidding? So we started looking for a property on Pender. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually we were looking for specific raw land with trees so that we could fall them and use them to build a house. So it kind of limited our... Our choices and then there happened to be a property for us on pender
1: cool and so like what year was this in exactly so
0: we bought our i was looking through my notes we bought our property in 2013
1: 2013
0: yeah so literally this spring was 10 years 10 years all right 10 years since having our property on pender and we were seasonal for the first bit of our time on pender uh and then eventually full-time in 2016
1: okay well let's go into the building of the our house
0: 2017 anyway okay
1: oh, oh no that's okay yeah the the building of the house because not everybody who uh, moves to the island says oh we're gonna look for raw land so we can basically like get our own trees and mill our own wood and build our own house <laughs> and this is what you and your partner dan have done so uh let's hear how that situation unfolded for you
0: Well, we, yeah, so Danny had his own mill. And so we were kind of prepared, okay, this is what we're going to do. I mean, naive, you're always naive when you come to a big project like that. So we had our our land. And uh, we worked seasonally in a fire tower, we can get back to that. um, In the summers, and then the winters, we came back to Pender. So over the course of the years, you know, we first basically it was just raw land. So we had to fall all the trees and Danny, you know, has his certification for that, but it was still terrifying. (laughs) We're so naive, right? We come from Alberta and we're like, okay, yeah, this tree will, you know, fall maybe halfway across our yard and, and it falls like across our yard and then almost across the neighbor's, you know, empty lot, thankfully of just trees that have fallen as well. So it was totally insane. And then, milled all that wood and had it ready and we first built um, a hundred square foot cabin and then we lived in that for five years so for the first four years we didn't have power and then the last year we got power and so I've showered outside for those five years (laughs) which was awesome I I feel really proud of those years Uh, but near the end we had like a little bit of PTSD like it was hard you know the winters are here are cold and wet and It was so fun uh, living in the cabin, but Danny was getting out of wet boots, working all day, wet clothes, and then climbing into sort of a semi-damp bed. Like we had a little sailboat stove, took six-inch logs, you know, but you can't burn that for very much of the night. And so um, then he was getting back into his wet clothes. It was was a bit rough. He got pneumonia a couple of times. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, over those years. And so near the end, when we finally had power in that last year, it was like, game changer I could I could use blender
1: why did you guys not toast? have power for so many years
0: we just didn't have power hooked up to the, our land okay. yeah so once we were actually building the house then we got a pole and paid for all that
1: yeah yeah because these things cost money these things cost money yeah they do yeah
0: yeah so we just lived without power and we had a couple solar panels and it was awesome
1: this is a, that's a grind though, right? Like, such a I'm, grind. I'm I'm just really trying to put myself in the head of someone who has taken showers outdoors like <laughs> all year round for was it was it four or five years? Doesn't matter if it's four or five. It's a Because we time. were working at
0: the tower, which you know. So then in my summers we we had we were collecting rainwater for showering and all the things, and then we would come to Pender in the winters, and <laughs> then we would shower outside. We had hot water on demand. So, I mean, that is a game changer because in the summers it was just cold rainwater. We didn't have hot water. So, I mean, yeah, Dan says we always just, he started me out real uh, with the basics so that everything he did, I'm like, yay, a bathtub. Yay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, the building of the house uh, begins after numerous years. Yeah.
0: So, that was, we lived in the cottage while we were building the house and then we moved in. So, basically... um, seasonally at the tower and then working on our land and then we broke ground 2016 I want to say and that's when we stopped doing lookout towers and then just full-time worked on our house and lived in our cabin.
1: I I would imagine most people listening have not built their own house some people have and kudos to you people because that's amazing but uh what was your experience like of building your own home (laughs) and actually so maybe Before you start talking about that, if you could describe the size and the appearance of the home for us, please.
0: Yeah, so the property we got was, it it was originally crown land. And then the original owners bought it in 1979. And then they just kept it raw land until we bought it, which is insane. There's not a lot of raw spots of land on Razor Point Road. That's where our house is. And it's just beautiful road. And so when we first looked at it, it was so treed and so densely you know, these old trees that have fallen down and just, it was crazy. We didn't even know if we'd have really an ocean view. And I mean, it's a beautiful ocean view now, (laughs) but we, it was just such a dense forest and old, old trees in there. So it was such an incredible experience to be able to use every single piece of what we took out. There was only one specific place we could build the house and because of all the variances. And so we took out trees and then every single piece of those trees we used, for trim and post and beams and everything, cupboards and counters. And it's just amazing. Yeah. So I would say coolest thing we've ever done, except probably the hardest thing we've ever done. And I just, when people ask, should we do it? We're like, should you? Don't. Oh, will you get divorced? Don't know. (laughs) Like, Can you make it through it? No clue. Like it's, it's such an incredible thing, but it isn't for everybody for sure. Such a grind. Oh my gosh. And I think because we lived in our cabin, you know, like a hundred square feet, it's the size of my in-law's walk-in closet, (laughs) like eight by 12. So really a cozy little place. And even after we finished the house, we would just be walking next to each other in the house. And we're like, oh, you can be in another room, can't you? Weird. (laughs) I'm like, I miss you. Where are you? In the bathroom? Okay. (laughs) Okay.
1: (laughs) So that's uh, the way you just said about the stress and the intensity of doing that. And maybe some people's partnerships might not survive it. Understandably, right? Because when two people are under a huge amount of stress, no matter what it is, it's really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like. uh, So
0: rewarding, but just not, you know, it's people romanticize these things and they are romantic. Like this is the thing. It also was so epically romantic to do it. Here we lived in this cottage and then we worked in a tower and then we came back to Pender in the winters and and did this thing together. Like It was super cool. And the house is gorgeous. It's three floors. We have a little bit of a um, sort of open garden suite down below. And then we live in the main and the upper floor and um, timber framed sort of hybrid house. It's beautiful.
1: It is a beautiful house. It's, yeah. it's uh, amazingly beautiful, for sure. And the three floors is incredible as well, too, because it, it's got this feel of uh, kind of like a, like a treehouse. Well,
0: we, we were at our tower when we designed it, Chris. So literally, we just built another fire tower.
1: <laughs> there you <laughs> go, right? Kidding. Yeah.
0: When we built it, we're like, we literally just designed a fire tower. What were we thinking? Actually, it's perfect. Our lot is kind of a weird, steep property. And so really, we had to build up. We couldn't build wide. So that's why the three floors kind of made sense. Yeah. Fair. The three-floor treehouse.
1: The three-floor treehouse. And uh, and I love that you used the word, uh, there was a, a romance involved yeah. in, in the the project, right? And it's, it's interesting to um, perceive doing something difficult in that way as being like a romantic endeavor, you know, that uh, things that are hard can also totally be- Totally romantic. You know. Yeah. I know. Cool.
0: And usually it's hindsight that you're like, that was romantic, yes, maybe. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but at the time, at the time, I mean, at the time, there were moments where it was pure magic, totally. But then there were other moments where it was like, wow, I have laundry PTSD. I don't know where to put anything, and I have to carry it to somewhere else to do to do it because we didn't have laundry for five years. You know, just just little
1: little things. Yeah. Uh okay, well let's get back to Pender in a little bit, but we're going to bounce back to the very beginning of your life right now. Okay. Where the heck did you grow up, shanda
0: I grew up between Alberta and BC, kind of equal. I was born in Alberta, small town, northern Alberta, hmm. Peace River. And my dad was born in Peace River, my mom was born in Peace River, my brother was born in Peace River, which is so weird to think because that's kind of the only the fact that all four of us were born in that same area because from that point on we were then just like gypsies that moved everywhere else (laughs) so yeah we and then my sister was adopted um years later once we actually had left or I think we were still in Alberta uh, and then we moved to BC so some of those younger years in Alberta then sort of junior high high school years in Alberta or sorry in BC and then back to Alberta did did some living in Edmonton and then back to BC for married life so
1: and so, why was your family bouncing around back and forth from Alberta to BC? Quite I lot?
0: mean, it was the '90s, like '80s, '90s. Like I think it was just work. My dad was just bouncing around to find work. You know, uh, at the early stage of the '80s, the interest rates went crazy, so we had built a little house when we were younger, when we were smaller. And I, I think my my parents decided to make a move, maybe to find more work. And then BC kind of went through the 90s thing where it was really the struggle for work. So I think we moved back to Alberta eventually. And then same thing. So mostly work related, I think is why we moved. Family in Alberta, friends in BC, kind of torn between the two.
1: Yeah. And what was your father doing for work? And actually, before we go there, what is your dad's first name?
0: Bob. 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 Yeah. Yeah, Bob Cooper. Not the uh, other Bob Cooper that lived here many years ago. Because when my parents moved to Pender, apparently there had been a previous Bob Cooper that stole a bunch of money from people.
1: Okay. That's n- not the it's name not you want to have when you're moving I to I know,
0: when you come to a small island. Yeah. So not that Bob Cooper, <laughs> the other one. <laughs> kind of like when we first moved to Pender, everyone would be like, oh, you're the other tower people. <laughs>
1: Yeah, <laughs> that, that
0: was what we got called. We're like, sorry, we're on a small island. And there's we're the other tower people on this small island, like how cool is that really?
1: I guess it's uh it, it was it, amazing it's It's interesting how people like and like this is part of the reason for doing the show how like we have these really like small, narrow perceptions of people's like lived experience right, <laughs> and it's like the only thing I know about this person is that they work in the lookout towers, and i will uh I will assign that label to you. <laughs> And then the next people that come along, right? Anyway, but... uh, Well, I
0: think it was just so cool that there happened to be other tower people on a small island that we came to.
1: Totally. Totally. From
0: Alberta. It's just so cool.
1: And when, when Genev and I first met you, you know, we found out that we had actually visited the tower that uh, you oh. and Dan stayed at, and uh, a friend of ours had been there before, that's or like so after cool. you left or before you okay. left. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, but, we will. Uh, I know. But no, that's okay. So um, yeah, your dad's so name- Bob Cooper. Bob, and what was he doing for work?
0: Uh, he was just doing mostly carpentry. That okay. was kind of what he had been doing at the time. And then he was a business consultant as well, so he did lots of- consulting on the side and would always fall back on his trade so he was just traveling around doing that mostly okay yeah and then um eventually moved full-time to kind of his own consulting business and then he was back in alberta uh working doing that
1: and so you're growing up in a situation where you're uh, you're moving quite a lot, yeah and uh, how was that experience for you? Was it uh, disruptive? Was it flowing, normal, strange? Uh, and
0: it's so funny because Dan and I are the exact opposites where Dan, his parents live in the same house that they built 40 years ago when they were in their like early twenties, they got married, had all their kids there. every single kid you know has lived in that home, and they still own it. And my parents, we've moved so many times. And so it's so interesting, the two ways to grow up. And I would say it's made me super resilient. Um, It's not always easy to be new often. uh, And I've had to learn to kind of manage that. I think it's made me definitely able to meet people easy and get to know people. And yeah. I don't know. I've kept a lot of those first friendships in the younger years. Actually, I'm really close to those people, which is neat. So still some of the friendships, even though we've moved, have really stayed the test of time, which is awesome.
1: Cool. And you use the word resilient. And that comes from, I guess, having to show up in new situations all the time and uh, try to integrate.
0: Well, yeah. And it's funny. It's this new thing. Like they're not new, but in parenting books and stuff, they're talking about like you know, creating resilience in your kids. Sometimes you actually have to create these scenarios of resilience, right? And so I often think, oh, okay, well, then I guess there's a gift in there that that just came with that package, you know, a bit of resilience. And you can get it from other ways. I mean, Dan, even though he didn't move maybe homes a bunch of times, there were other aspects of his life that created resilience, right? So, yeah, I think it's a gift, but in the midst of it, it's not always pleasant.
1: For sure. No doubt. But do you know roughly around what age you were able to reflect on those experiences and and like apply the word resilient to it?
0: Oh, man. It's a great question. I don't know. I think it's always been a thread in my life that I've just had to have a lot of resilience for things. Yeah. All I right. don't know. Yeah, I couldn't tell you if there's a specific time that I reflected on being like, I'm resilient. You know, I would say probably in the latter years, going through some of the stuff, Dan and I have gone through some of the losses and grief. I would say maybe that is when I have reflected on the fact that there's actually been a thread of resilience through my whole life. So maybe actually more in the recent years.
1: Okay. Cool. And what kind of things were you into when you were a uh, prepubescent child and a teenager? What sort of like hobbies and activities did you uh, partake in?
0: You know, it's funny. I think about me and my childhood. It was a lot of time spent uh, in the forest. I would just go explore in the forest. We we lived for a big chunk of our time in BC on, on a hobby farm, a little And so, I mean, I would spend hours winning over the chickens and the sheep and the every animal in our yard and just hours going by myself into the forest, eating alfalfa, like just, it was kind of, you know, given that I would have alone time. So it was interesting to learn more about my personality as I became an adult, realizing, I'm actually very introverted, but introversion time was always an ample, you know, given to me. So in social settings, I would seem extremely social for these pockets of time. And I love people and I love communicating, but I always had alone time, just sort of taken for granted, maybe. So, yeah, a lot of time just spent in with animals on the farm or being in the forest.
1: So you yeah. weren't really a TV kid at all. We didn't have TV. You didn't have TV. No,
0: we didn't have TV. Whoa. Didn't have a TV. And I haven't had a TV in my life as an adult for probably, I want to say 15 years. Mm-hmm. Maybe more. Have I ever had a TV actually? I think maybe a roommate has had a TV. But yeah, no. No TV in my life.
1: Well, I think that's a very fortunate experience to have in your childhood <laughs> to not have a television. It is,
0: except when you're at a restaurant, then you're the person who cannot pull your eyes from a TV because you didn't grow up with it.
1: (laughs) What is that in the corner of the No, I'm
0: not even joking. You're like, wow, I don't even like this TV, but I am that kid. I'm that person.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So we cannot connect on topics like The Cosby Show or Growing Pains, but we we can connect on topics. We had friends
0: who had TVs. Yeah. We had friends who had TVs. Oh, (laughs) and you know what? Now that I think about it, my parents had a tiny little six-inch black and white TV but sometimes we'd pull out and we would be able to watch home improvement, mm. fresh prints.
1: Two shows I watched a lot of when I was a kid. Yeah, so yeah. that
0: I remember that and the raccoons.
1: Oh, the raccoons. Good right? CBC program. So sometimes right we there. could
0: pull it out, we could get that to work.
1: Well, <laughs> like speaking of raccoons, you mentioned animals and you spent a lot of time playing with animals and engaging with them. So that was something that really was within you was was developing connections with
0: animals. Totally. Right? Yeah. For my entire life I've been just um drawn to animals wanting to be around animals love animals yeah
1: just out of curiosity uh what is it exactly about animals because not everybody's an animal person and for myself we don't
0: trust them when they don't like animals no i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) just kidding (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not a huge cat fan myself. You might
0: but. have to edit that out That
1: could be offensive, Chris. <laughs> no way, we're leaving that up. <laughs> uh well, yeah. So like to me, I love dogs. I love being yeah. around dogs. And uh and, and but like chickens, for instance, I, I wouldn't give them the time of day necessarily, right? But from what I was gathering, it sounds like that you had an appreciation for lots of different yes.
0: animals. Yeah. I honestly don't know. I think it's the time. I like um Reforming animals too. I really like the real old salty, the cats that are feral. The I just love it. I like the time it takes to get the trust of an animal. I think it's so neat and just spend, spending time. So even at our tower, we, we would go back every season and there would be return animals that we'd be like, oh, some gray jays or owls or just different creatures that we started to, you know, and the swallows and they would come back, like just build a bit of a relationship But then I like that about animals. I mean, there's something, a thrill, especially if it's a wild animal that just lets you experience them a little bit. And I, I think we've had neat conversations, you and I and, and Geneva at the tower too, different experiences with animals. And I don't know, something super powerful.
1: Yeah, totally. Like, trying to communicate with ravens, for instance, stands yeah. out in my mind. And when you, when you feel like you get some kind of engagement from a raven, that uh, it's like, whatever, buddy, quit trying to make your silly sounds and pretend like you're, <laughs> you're talking to me. You're like, oh, you're actually being to me, Mr. Raven. That's so great.
0: And then there's some people who hate ravens and then the ravens like torture them. Yeah. Which is so like, just keep dropping stuff on their head or, you know, just being little turds back. And it's, I think it's just neat. Yeah. yeah there's maybe just a respect there, right? Of, of sort of the depth of what an animal is experiencing or thinking or I don't know. Curious.
1: But uh, it's cool. It's cool that that was – sounds like that was super important to your uh, developmental years and going into being an adult now.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So as well too, I know that uh, when you were in your later teenage years, you started to get involved in the world of music. Yeah. And uh, yeah.
0: Well, it was neat. Again, you know, a lot of it came from the Tower experience. So maybe we should talk about the tower okay. experience, because that definitely fed into my music,
1: for well, sure. Let's go there. So to give a little bit of an intro, there are fire lookout towers that exist in yeah. Alberta. So you and myself and my wife, Genova, and your partner, Dan, all have had experiences working at fire lookout towers. Yeah. And... So this is a very unique situation that we've had uh, to, uh, to work in this career for a period of time. And let's try to do our best to explain to people what the experience was like and and give some good uh, feelings and visuals as to what Tower Life is like. Hmm. So what year did you start doing Towers and how did you hear about it?
0: Uh, oh, man, the year, I want to say it maybe 2005. Something like that, 2005. Yeah. Um, and when I was 16 years old, still in high school, a lot of my friends were older than me. And a few of them were putting themselves through university working at a fire lookout. And I'm like, what is this job you were talking about? So cool. And I remember just they would talk about that, like, you know, the the two different types of people that end up being drawn to fire towers, right? You have the people that are the artists, the authors, the they're going to university. I mean, it's a seasonal job, Right. Um the painters the creatives the musicians and then on the other hand you also have the people who can't function in society <laughs> and so then they go work at a tower where they do not have to actually see anybody basically the entire however long their season is so i just remember kind of hearing about that from my friends and thinking if i ever get a chance i'm going to totally do that and when i was 16 and then i didn't again until yeah i would have been maybe 24 something like that or, or was i 21 i might have been 21 I think I was 21 when I did my first tower season. Uh, and it was just one of those things I'm like, you know what? People tree plant and they destroy their bodies. And I'm like, if I hate this, I don't have to ever do it again. I'll just try it. And it was the coolest thing I've ever done. It was so amazing. So I was flown into a fly-in tower, 20-minute helicopter ride to the nearest community. And they I was there four and a half months and they flew me my groceries once a month and it was just so incredible i brought my guitar and i did play a little bit i was a kind of a secret songwriter and and a guitar player but not really for anybody else but myself and i would play like 6 hours a day wow at my tower yeah wow. it was such a formative time because i didn't really bring anything i didn't there was no internet i didn't have internet i didn't have a cell phone i didn't have anything we had a landline to check in that's about it. And I brought my computer with some garage band and taught myself to do a bit of recording. And it was just amazing. I wrote a lot of songs in those early years.
1: And to set this up a little bit here so people kind of get a bit of an idea of what things look like is that so a typical tower site is going to have a trailer on the site that's about 400 square feet. So it's your living space, office, living room, kitchen. And then there's a separate tower on a steel frame That goes between 80 to 120 feet up in the air. And there is a cupola at the top. So it's an eight sided room with a lot of windows to do a lot of looking out there. And you have something called a firefinder in the middle, which uh, allows you to be able to give the exact location of a fire so you can call that in and triangulate with other lookout tower people. But you said that you were in a fly in tower yourself your first season. So you get dropped off uh, with the gear that you bring along, which isn't very much, mm-hmm. and the groceries that you have for your first month, and some drinking water, because uh, there's rainwater collection that happens for showering and washing. Mm-hmm. But you have your own drinking water, and that helicopter flies away, and you are on your own in the <laughs> middle of the bush. Uh, <gasps> do you remember how that uh, first experience went for you? That first first night or first oh, week. Man you
0: know what, you feel completely abandoned. It's so strange. Like that feeling was so strange because you, you know, I, again, I was 21 years old and I didn't have a, I had, think I had pepper spray. I didn't have a gun. I had nothing, you know, and my tower was called Musqua, which someone told me years later, that means grizzly <laughs> or bear. And there's grizzlies in the area. You know, it was so jarring to be left. And I would say for the first month I would close all the curtains as it would get a bit dark, close all the curtains in the cabin, you know, just kind of get everything safe and secure. And then one day I was like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? You either face it. Do you think someone's out there? You know, there's this weird sinking feeling when you have to let yourself go into the isolation. So it took, I would say, yeah, three weeks to a month of just kind of immersing myself into that place and being like, there's nobody out there. And if they are, what can you do? What can you do? So you have to surrender to that. And um, I just opened the windows and I st- or opened all the curtains in the evenings. And I started just letting myself get really climatized to the dark. And I would turn off all the lights, turn off everything. Just make sure that I just uh, enjoyed the evening kind of getting darker and the sun setting and the quiet. And it took a bit to get to that place without feeling guilt. So strange, like guilt to just sit quietly for a long period of time, you know, uh-huh. and stare or whatever. We just don't do that. And I remember startling myself, moving my dining table or the chair, just because every sound had a purpose, you know, the clanging of the tag on the tower or just everything you knew. And when there was a different foreign sound, it was a big deal. So I, I, I it took a while to decompress from sort of my the outside world. But once you get into that place, it's so amazing.
1: Yeah, just you speaking there brought me back into that world a little bit. And uh, it is. It is amazing. And as well, too, is that you were on a generator up there, I presume.
0: Yeah. 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 So in terms of. Just a certain couple hours a day. Like I would run it for as little as I could just to keep, you know, the batteries good. and Because you need to have your landline or your like cell phone charged or whatever. The landline, I think it's a landline, Chris. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they they require you to have that generator on a few for a few hours a day minimum. Um, so I just did the minimum just to keep the, you know, equipment up and then the rest of the time was just quiet.
1: Yeah, and your job is to be still and uh, try to maintain your sanity.
0: Yeah, <laughs> totally. That's what's so interesting about the job is it's not a physical, it's a psychological job. Yeah. There's physical elements for sure. You know, you climb a tower. My ta- that tower, I think, was 90 feet or around there. And that was a hoof climbing, you know, this ladder and you hook yourself in. You got your cable and your fall arrest equipment. But... It was all the mental. The mental aspect was so fascinating. Like you really need to like yourself. And I think at first it takes a little bit to figure out if you do. <laughs> I don't know. Did Certainly. you find that?
1: Oh, yeah. I totally found that. I found that. I was really scared about the experience before totally. I did it. Because Geneva did it the first year. And I was like, whoa, you're so brave. I, I couldn't do that. And huh. then I got really curious about it. I lived with her at her tower for the second half of the summer and then I had another job, but that was where I was spending my nights. And uh then yeah, the curiosity took over and I thought, oh, I, I want to try this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's there's no hiding from yourself out there yeah. once you're on your own. And uh it's it's amazing what you said about the sounds and how you become so connected to the regular sounds of your day and the yeah. actual quiet that exists out there and Yeah, the depth of being present with yourself and then also the land Hmm. as well, too. So what the job consists of is uh, on days where it's extreme or high fire hazard, you have to climb up into your little cupola and you spend usually between the hours of 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. looking over the land, watching for smoke to rise, which could potentially be a fire which you would call in and alert somebody too and then they would send a helicopter to go explore and see if it was a fire so there were a lot of nine-hour days spent staring at the land
0: totally
1: yeah how yeah, did that, so used to it yeah how did that feel for you in terms of those because you, you talked about like the psychological aspect of being on your own but what about just being confined to that small space and looking out through the windows all the time for something that actually usually never happens. I know.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it really, it's amazing. The difference, my first two seasons that I did were uh, very isolated by myself. And then the last four years that I did, I was with Dan at a tower. So that changed even the feeling of isolation and, and the difference of, of experience. And so I, I think the coolest thing was, constantly, repeatedly staring at the same land and noticing anything different. You know, just you're, you're paid to notice all the little details. You're paid to get up in the morning, check your relative humidity, go see if there's like buds that have, you know, budded, but you know, you're like paid to write down those observations. Right. And so that part was so neat because it just slowed everything down. You're like, I am supposed to observe all of these changes, and. Um, I don't know, even when I finished my first tower season, I remember going back to Edmonton and hanging out with some friends and i I mean, I could almost not talk about it. I just got teary eyed just talking about it. It was so powerful, just going into that place of heavy uh you know isolation. I don't know, and I know it's not the same feeling for everybody who goes into isolation. Some people shouldn't, <laughs> you know for me, it was just so powerful, and uh. Yeah. The the trees buzzed. There was like an energy. It's true. I don't know how to explain it.
1: Yeah. Well, there's, there are so many different ways to explain it, but it's a challenging one to explain because there's such a richness of connection to the land and to yourself that I found as the weeks went by, I would sink deeper and deeper and deeper in such a positive way. Into those experiences. And, um, yeah, there was such a payoff in terms of spending one month and then two yeah. and then three and then four and then usually by month five it got to be a little tiring and the fall was about yeah. to kick in and it was but that's just
0: psychology right you knew your limit it's funny how when we're given a certain amount of time like if, it, if you're told it's going to be seven months or if you're told it's four three months and three weeks in you're like <laughs> i gotta get the f out of here what's going on <laughs> if, if your season's gonna be seven months six months and a half you're like okay yeah i can't do this anymore like it's just so incredible yeah the psychology of the timeline
1: right? Yeah, definitely which which like in other things in my life if i've been having a hard time you know like finishing something or yeah. whatever like i'd give myself like a, a false timeline like yeah. i'd be like oh like oh yeah like this is gonna take seven hours it's like oh i only took five that was great right <laughs> and uh yeah you just trick yourself but, totally <laughs> but but you said you were playing music six hours a day up there yeah I was. So one thing that I found being at the tower was it was this deep sense of feeling free because you weren't being watched by Mm. anybody. So this was the first time that you were really, really digging deep into playing music.
0: Totally. I I had never really played. I mean, my whole life I could sing, but I was very shy. So like you couldn't, you know, I, I maybe had some secret songs I'd written, but I wouldn't play them for people. And I had played at a few friends' weddings or done a few things because I could always sing, but I often would play my own songs, you know. And then eventually when I was maybe, I think I learned my first three chords on a guitar at age 17. Like music is such an interesting thing for me because a lot of people are like, you know, I was three when I was handed a guitar or whatever. And I didn't, I was 17, 18, 19, you know, and I was still very kind of, shy about it. And if you asked me to play in front of people, I would just get so shy and it was stressful, but I couldn't help it. And music is so interesting because there's been so many times in my life where I've not wanted to do music. I just want to be done with music and music just haunts me. <laughs> like, and so it's such a different thing with music for me. Cause some people are like, I just wanted to be a musician so bad. I'm like, not me. Like I, I couldn't help it. I could not help it. I, Over the years, like, writing songs, I've had so many strange experiences of songs just being delivered to me, you know? Like, I really, honestly, have had such a strange um, relationship with music. You know, I feel like music kind of just hunts me down. I can't get away from it. Really? Totally. Totally. There's been so many times where I'm like, oh, because it's so much work. It's so much work. Even recording all the albums I've done, I mean for very little pay, you know, and, and it's just a lot of heart energy and all the things of being a creative artist, like all those things, being an artist, being creative. I think a lot of people can relate to that. But for me, that was my experience was it, it was, um, if I could have done anything else, I would have. And that's what I always say to people. They're like, oh, should I keep doing music? I'm like, well, if you can do other things, then yeah, go do all those other things. But if it keeps coming around and you can't help it, then you'll do it. <laughs>
1: like, when you say songs were delivered to you, what do you mean that they were delivered to
0: um, you? Yeah, just that I I would often have lyrics or things that just uh, wake up. And there would be periods of time where there would be no songs. Like That's what's interesting when I was sort of reminiscing before thinking about this interview with you, just about the last album we did. I had such a long period of time where I hadn't written a single song in years. And I there was lots of grief going on at that time. And I was like, maybe I'll never write another song. You know, it's like you kind of go through these periods of time where it's like, maybe I'll never be able to do this again. You know? And it's very real. And then all of a sudden something shifts or changes or an experience happens and it unlocks. Something and then, you know, uh, with this latest album, I honestly was being woken up in the middle of the night with songs, and I'll just write them out. Super strange, and it's not always like that for me. Sometimes it's poems that I've made into songs. Sometimes I've had even this uh, most recent album. It's about twenty years worth of songs that that I had some and I had written the the melody twenty years ago, and then finally just had words for it in the last two years, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's such an interesting process carrying around these little bits that sometimes suddenly will make sense.
1: <laughs> I just finished reading a book called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, oh. who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. And so she spends this entire book talking about the creative process. Mm. And it's really amazing. I love this book, but she mentioned numerous stories. Of, I haven't read it. It's a good but one. I've
0: heard a lot about it. But
1: having, having, um, creativity delivered to us because we we have receivers within us that we're, we're picking up and uh, if we don't uh, make that choice to to hear that and then to uh, harness it and create something with it then it'll go on and move on to somebody else
0: huh, interesting
1: yeah that's cool that's yeah a cool concept so you're writing or you're playing music six hours a day at the lookout tower did you gain like a new confidence within yourself from all that playing or what was going on? Um,
0: I think, again, I just couldn't help it. I brought my guitar. I brought a few things and it was just flowing, you know, from the surroundings, whether it's being in nature or whatever, just clearing out the clutter. So I, I, I had just felt this beautiful float. Right. And so then from there, I went and went and lived back in Edmonton. And I remember a couple of years just being so depressed. I had lots of fun experiences, but I just pined to go back to the tower. And um, I started playing music a bit there and getting connected in the music scene and getting to know people that way, which was really neat. And being forced to play some of my songs publicly Um, The interesting part about my very first Tower season is I left from there, and I'm trying to think my first album that I recorded, I was around 21. So it was sometime in that, maybe the fall of that year after the season, that I went and recorded my first album in Abbotsford with my friend's dad. He does recording in his studio, a home studio, and I knew her my whole life, and I had actually just asked her a couple of years before secretly with all my little secret songs if her, if her dad would ever let me just come to the studio and just record a couple of songs and she was like yes so i planned on spring break a couple of years before and we just recorded six songs in 5 hours it was very just basic you know whatever i just wanted them to be recorded somewhere i just had these secret songs that i'd never played for anybody and so he contacted me like a year later and was just like you know what i keep Re-listening to your songs, I do, and he's like, "I think you need to record an album of music." And I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm doing," <laughs> and so because he said, "I know you have more," and so why don't you come? Set aside this time. I, I mean, it's such a beautiful thing that this person did for me. I still sometimes I'm like, "Whoa!" Basically, he said, "If you can commit to selling like 300 CDs when it's all done, I'll pay you know free studio time. Just come." So he just saw something there, and so I did. I just went and worked. I remember I packaged sausages at the Funks Food in Abbotsford, and uh, we recorded this album, my very first album of music. And I had never played any of the songs even live. So I had a full album completed before I'd ever really played any music for anybody else. I had played here and there, right? But my own stuff really hadn't. And so then I went from that experience to um, back into Edmonton and just kind of started getting into, because then people could hear what I sounded like, right? There was a reference for me, even though I'd never really played them live for people, there was a reference. So then I started connecting to such wonderful musicians and and people and getting more connected in the music scene. Uh, and then I chose to go back to a tower. I was playing with a previous cellist in Edmonton, who was a lovely, awesome guy. And I went back to my second season of Towers, and that's when I met Dan, because he worked for forestry. And then our relationship w- was kind of intertwined, and then um, we started playing music together a couple years into our relationship. And he built himself a cello at 30 years of age, taught himself to play. <laughs> <laughs> and then, because he had a crush on me, and then he replaced my previous cellist. I mean, come
1: on. I love, I love it. <laughs> he built himself a cello. Dan is so unbelievably talented. I know. He's so creative. Um yeah. the the story of how you met Dan, I thought, is really interesting. I don't know if you want to get into that a little bit because sure. I, I think it's uh it's really great. I didn't actually know the story until we had a phone conversation before the interview. <laughs> I was like, oh well, that's how it happened. But uh maybe if you could let uh, the listeners know how this uh wonderful gentleman came into your life.
0: Well, I remember <laughs> I remember um, telling my family I was going to go back and work at a fire tower again, right? So it's 2005, took two years off, and then 2008, I went back. And I remember people just making comments I'm in my late 20s, just about like, well, it's not really helping your single cause by going and working in the middle of the forest. And I remember being like, well, maybe... Whoever I'm meant to be with is just going to come out of the forest, you know, and then there was Dan. Um, But yeah, so Danny was a forestry firefighter for many years. He was a sector leader and he worked for Alberta Forestry as well. But he would be on the fire line pining, drawing pictures of fire towers. And I mean, there's not a lot of guys who are firefighters that are pining to be a tower person. It's just not – it's a two, two very different worlds. Very much, yeah. <laughs> and he would – he secretly – and so even before we were dating, once I had met him, I remember talking with him because he wanted to work at a fire tower. I'm like, do it. This is so awesome. And and so our – anyway, our paths crossed because um, my first tower season in 2005, I trained with my buddy Doug Tower. Doug And he was at my an adjacent tower to me, so we had to check in with each other when we would climb on the ladder, when we would, you know, mow lawn or whatever. And I went away for two years and then came back in 2008. And he, I took a different tower, and he had been at a different tower, and we happened to be adjacent to each other again. Doug, you're my tower buddy again. My tower buddy again. So, my buddy, yeah, he's so sweet. And it happened that Doug's tower was a 10 minute drive from Dan's property, kind of in High Prairie there. So Doug would talk about Dan all the time, Dan, Dan, Dan. And at the time, Dan was married um, to his previous wife. And so, I mean, Doug wasn't even thinking about it and neither was I. It was like, Dan, Dan, Dan. But he would just talk about Dan all the time. He just loved Dan so much. And I mean, he's such a lovable guy, you know. But I didn't actually meet him until midway through the summer. Uh, His ex-wife was my tower supervisor. And so my car broke down and I was like in tears. Um, because I was going to fly out to Montreal for a holiday mid season and I couldn't leave the staging camp to catch my flight the next day. And I, and so she's like, it's okay. It's okay. I'll bring Dan. Blah. blah. So I met Dan, he came, fixed my car and, um, it was just, just, you know, a very quick encounter with Dan and his previous wife, you know, but but that was such an interesting piece because then years later, actually it wasn't even years later, I want to say a year or so later, Doug brought Dan, who was divorced, <laughs> to one of my concerts in Edmonton. So I had met him and Doug brought Danny to a concert in Edmonton. I remember again meeting this human and being like, wow, like so impacted by just how kind he was. And um and then from that point on we just kind of stayed in touch and, and he ended up working at a fire tower while we were dating and engaged the first two years he we were dating engaged and then the last four years of that tower just didn't he did for six years uh we were married for those last four years
1: yeah so you guys uh you worked at the same tower for four years yeah, yeah. Okay. so i did
0: my first two sep- before i had met dan yeah and then i took Years off and was working in Edmonton while he was at his first two seasons of Tower. Okay. And we just wrote letters and kept in touch. And I would go drive out to visit him. And then the last four years, once we were married, uh, I moved. And then we, we worked at the Fire Tower and then we lived on Pender seasonally in the winters. So. You wrote letters to each other? Yeah, I think. Oh, yeah, I think no. so. I think no. we wrote letters. I mean,
1: it's it's a tower it thing to distance. do when you're a tower so person fun. writing letters. Oh, you've got the whole day. And care packages, oh. isn't
0: that like the actual most amazing thing? Getting care packages from people.
1: Yeah, definitely. I received Mail. a few and sent. I sent a whole bunch of letters. Actually, like it was less of a care package sender than a letter uh, sender. But um
0: yeah, I, I received.
1: That. Some, oh, loved it too. It was so great because there's just there was so much time. There was so much oh, time to be. You able could to
0: just do sit and digest, and it meant so
1: much. So when you two were working at the Lookout Tower together, there was a musical project that you entered into recording an album. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: So that was something that was neat. Danny, the first two seasons, I wasn't there with him. He taught himself. That was when he really worked on his cello (laughs) when we were dating and engaged. And then because you have so much time, same thing. He progressed so fast with his instrument, right? And then once we were married and sort of together, we, we really started playing more together and kind of writing together. And he started playing cello with me. And so at the tower, we decided to record an album. I had recorded two previous albums, uh, the, the very first one I did, and then another one in Edmonton, full studio and like just so amazing, and all the things. And it was an incredible experience, so much money. And then we decided, let's just record at our tower, you know, for a different experience. And it was the most amazing thing. And I think I was saying to you, you know, we draped a blanket over the fridge. We did all these things. It was a long weekend. His brother came out with a bunch of gear. It rained the whole time. And so we were on like low hazard. And so we just decided, okay, let's just record however many hours a day it takes. And we did A Flies South, that album of music. And so mostly every, all the cello, all the vocals, all the guitar were recorded At our lookout, and then Stevie, his brother, took it home, and then he added other instruments in Danny's uh, grandma's old suite on the property. So nothing was recorded in a professional studio for that
1: album. But uh, what incredible memories, I imagine.
0: The coolest. And we did uh, record a video out there, because I knew that we wouldn't be doing this forever, and I wanted to capture our lookout tower. Just what it was, the experience, that time together. So we recorded a music video to the song Fly out at the tower. So okay. you can see that online on our YouTube or whatever.
1: I'll I'll put a link to it for people to check it, in the, that'd in the be show awesome. notes. So people yeah, can so you can that. see
0: the tower. There's little clips of the video uh, of the fire tower, of the cupola. You can kind of see what Chris and I were talking about, what that physically looks like. The yeah. Little yeah. Red bubble.
1: Well worth checking out uh, yeah. for sure. And actually, just to take one quick step back, I was just thinking about what it was like for you going into Edmonton and being part of the music scene and developing as an artist and also growing up as a person through your twenties, through that whole experience. What was that like for you? Because there's so much vulnerability in being a creative person Hmm. and performing in front of people. And it sounds to me like you really stepped into that um, through previous conversations that we had about integrating yourself into the music scene but how do you reflect back on those years in terms of what you were pursuing and how much time you were investing into the uh the exploration of being a musician
0: well again music just kind of kept harassing me (laughs) so it would find me and I couldn't not do it um but I always had another job as well so I never ever fully made music my career I never fully made it my only place of making money because I always wanted to love it. I think I just had watched so many friends and I have so many people that I know and love who are such exceptional musicians and incredibly talented and who just barely make it, you know. So I don't know, the arts, whatever, we could go on philosophical like tirades about why that is that the arts always suffer, you know, or that you don't make money or whatever, <laughs> or the dichotomy between those who do and don't, you know. Um, but I I feel like I kind of kept other jobs. So I just did other jobs. And then I always had my music that I was pursuing and doing, or I would have songs and then eventually an opportunity would come up to record or, or Dan kind of grew up in a pretty musical family. I didn't really, we had music around us, but it's not like, you know, we were all crazy musicians in my family and um yeah so i feel that we we definitely kept coming and circling back to music no matter what even in our relationship dan and i but we always had other jobs i don't know if that kind of answers what your your
1: uh, question or yeah well because the the um the pursuit of it and it, it so it sounds like you you were able to put The music on one side and recognize like i don't really want to jump with two feet in with the like you know almost guarantee that this is not going to wind up being like a lifelong (laughs) pursuit but you're you're so heavily invested in it regardless that like you've got your day job but like this is something that you're going to be pursuing Mm -hmm. um Regardless, right? But but the experience of meeting other musicians, going up on stage, getting a gig, recording an album, like what do you think was it that really kept you going through all that?
0: Honestly, the I, I that's such a good question because it does cost a lot of money and it's a lot of work. So I think I couldn't help it. I just would have these songs and I wanted to share them. I think that's what it is. For me, I'm so much more motivated. By an a shared experience with music than I am by performing like being in front of people or the attention no and I mean, as you know me now a bit more, you know, understand like I have this introversion part that can immerse deeply into being alone, and so for me, performing is honestly a huge uh mental thing I have to get over every time, even now after years and but if I'm connecting and I feel that, then I'm like, I can do this, I love this, right. But just to be in front of people or or to be a performer, uh, it actually doesn't feed. And Dan and I are similar. We both almost get a little bit ill, <laughs> like every time we have to. And then after, we feel such a deep connection. And I feel like people respond so amazingly to the songs. And they have told me that. And that's what's kept me going. It's like, okay, I got to keep doing this. Because, uh, I mean, people need these songs. I think that's it. <laughs> just like bit of in service to something. I mean, it sounds so cliche because it is, we've all read the books about that being a creative and being in service, but it's actually just true. You, you are unable to help the fact that you need to deliver this to the world, even though it's a, it's sort of uncomfortable often.
1: Yeah. I hear you. Right? You said shared <laughs> connection. So shared connection between you and other performers on the stage? Yes, totally. Yeah. Uh,
0: other performers, but also the audience. Yeah. Like for me, it's not enough to just have everybody looking at me. I literally want to crawl under a rock. <laughs> like I, that makes me almost feel so shy. But if I'm just having this deep connection and you can tell, it's like people are there for a shared experience. And that is the coolest thing for me. It's awesome. And I could keep doing it forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, uh, that is what keeps me going is people connecting to the words and the songs and the music and playing with amazing musicians. And I've had the opportunity to play with such awesome musicians too. And I'm always like, what the heck? I mean, this... The last album we did, it was so amazing uh, because a lot of people were not touring. So a lot of my amazing musician friends played on that album because they weren't away touring. So I got to have them. (laughs) And I still am like, how did I get those people to play with me? I guess just such a, it's awesome.
1: Well, if you want to jump into that story right now, because I know that this last album you made meant a lot to you. Yeah. And uh, it was recorded during COVID times.
0: COVID times. Like you said, (laughs) one little silver lining of COVID times. (laughs) Um, Well, when I think about our relationship, so, you know, the progression of recording my very first album when that gentleman asked me to come back and me having never played live. And then that opening up so many doors in Edmonton for music, right? And playing with wonderful people and then recording another full album in Edmonton. And then meeting Danny and working at our tower and the experience of that and then recording at our tower. And then this last album. So the progression of, I'm kind of a slow burn, like there's often six to eight years in between albums because A, I do it for myself and I just save up money. Uh, But also I don't have a time limit of when I need to put out something. And so I just kind of wait till it feels the right time or I can't help it. And the the fascinating part about this last album, I had no intention of doing this album of music, I had no idea how it would ever happen in my life, right? It was just sort of, we were busy, we'd built our house, we had just moved into our house. It's kind of crazy through the years. Um, one of our threads is that Dan and I have had the the battle of infertility for like 11 years. And so throughout our entire marriage, basically, that's been this thread. I mean, it's come out, I've I've tried to write songs about it, but I actually hadn't really been able to put it in words. And so I just contemplated for a lot of those years and infertility is so strange. You know, um, one of the things that I have observed about the grief of infertility is it's different maybe than the grief of a loss that is a point in history, you know, where you move away from that point in history, kind of outward, like the, like the expanding universe. Right. But I I um for years tried to explain or understand within myself what is this infertility grief because we had been to four specialists we had done every type of imaging surgery like everything we had done it all chinese medicine acupuncture herbs everything and they had not found a single reason why for 11 years we were not able to have a pregnancy or to have children. And so it was so strange. I think if you have a definitive answer, maybe you can move away from that shock and be like, okay, this is my reality. You grieve, You it's a death and you move away. And for us, we were given just nothing. It was always like, actually, you should try this because it makes no sense. Actually, you should try that. Like, it was just so strange. So we just went through years with no answer. So it's this gray. And when I came to a place of trying to accept like, okay, this is my reality. I am my, I think my path is that I will be childless. I can't imagine that in my like mind's eye because of just who I am and just what it was in my heart. But it was like, okay, I need to come to a place of acceptance. And so this was in the last few years. I just, you know, we did all the things, meditating, meditating, all the spiritual stuff. I was reading all the books. I was doing all the stuff just because I'm like, okay, I need to come to that place. Even though I'm not given a definitive answer of no, or this or whatever, I have to kind of create that within myself, that answer. And so I, I, a lot of things happened during COVID. One of them being, we were pursuing another kind of avenue of a little bit of fertility stuff and it all just got canceled. Everything got canceled. I was going to take a course. Uh, and so I had, put a pause on my job and I was going to do online schooling. And then COVID happened and that all got canceled too. So it was the strangest thing. Everything got canceled for me in this one period of time. And so I just had this weird time set in front of me and I'm like, okay, this is the time. No one's going to come to my house because of COVID. (laughs) No one's going to show up. I can go into my grief. So it was after like a decade, right? I just or maybe not quite 10 years. Yeah, about a decade. And I just went into that place cuz I'm like no one's going to show up. I can actually go there and face these years that we've been building. We've been doing so many fun things, but still this thread of infertility and unanswered questions. So it's the first time I deeply went in there and That was when all these songs started coming back to me in dreams. I would wake up, like I was telling you, I hadn't written a song in years because it was just, we'd been so busy with everything and fertility stuff and building our house and all. So I hadn't written a song in years and I was like waking up with songs. I, you know, I had this reoccurring dream about shaving my head and it was so weird because I had 10 years worth of growth in my hair too. Like It was long hair. I loved it. I've only had long hair. And I remember saying to Dan one day, like, babe, I keep having this weird dream about shaving my head. And he's like, "Whoa, okay, if that's what you feel you need to do, I'm like, no, hell no, I'm not going to shave my head. But I just wanted to find out what you think if, you know, and, um, and then it just kept coming back. And I'm like, what an interesting thing. So I started researching about shaving heads and all these parts of the story and, and there's so much history about grief and shaving your head and women. There's a, there's a lot of power in a lot of those things, and um, emotions and hair and just weird stuff that I was like, whoa, okay. And so eventually, I actually just I did I shaved my head and it was the craziest experience of my life because with the grief of infertility, you know, it isn't a point in history you're moving away from. What it felt to me was like. This constant linear grief, like month to month, like linear. And you're actually in reverse from like death towards what you hope is life because you're still hoping. So you're not moving. For the longest time, I just couldn't put that into words. And then when I shaved my head, it kind of became this point in history that I was like, okay, that is my moment. I am going to move away from this time. I just created that moment. It was like a key. So it kind of unlocked. And that was when I decided to record this album. I'm like, okay, I'm in this, I'm in it. I'm so there. I've been given this time, (laughs) like everything's canceled. And so, and it was, I just coordinated. It was a bit strange because we couldn't all be in the studio at one time because of COVID restrictions. So then it would be a certain musician at one time. And I recorded most of the album was in Vancouver with a musician called Jordan Clausen, incredible producer guy. And so I, 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 spent you know four months like going a week at a time and I would just go and we'd record and then we'd coordinate with m- the musicians that came or they would send me stuff digitally and we put it together and the crazy thing is over the course of that recording I just realized this today the first week of deciding to actually start that recording I found out when I was pregnant actually. Well really the first week and um I found out the day that I started to record the lyrics to my song, Seeing Stars, which the song Seeing Stars is exactly a song that I woke up in the night with those lyrics. And it's about that constellation of grief, trying to put infertility into words. It was that day. (laughs) It was so crazy. And then I ended up having a miscarriage over the course of the recording Mm -hmm. of this album. So like 10 years of waiting to get pregnant, got pregnant when I was recording this album, had a miscarriage while I was recording this album, finished the album and delivered it to the world. Like it was just the most crazy experience to do that. And that's why I think it's so impactful and, and, um, why I feel so like blessed that I got to do it because I just, I don't know how I would have ever been able to do that. Had the stars not aligned, you know, and had not, I come to a place where I was just ready to dive into the grief.
1: Well, I'd like to talk about grief for a little bit if you're into it. Sure. So when you said that once COVID happened in 2020, you felt like you had an opportunity to delve into your grief. Yeah. Grief is an interesting one. I've been, I've been thinking a lot about grief myself lately. In the last uh, few weeks, so this mm. this is of interest to me right now. But what did that look like for you? Because it was such a weird time. Obviously, <laughs> everybody knows. But but as you mentioned before, it was an opportunity because people weren't going to be coming to your house, and you were able to you know cocoon. Yeah. But what did that experience of grief look like for you, um, specifically from what you remember? During those times.
0: Like during kind of the COVID time or yeah, just, yeah. well, I think it was a build-up. Like I, we had just been busy, right? I kept busy through that whole time. We were doing a lot of stuff and it was the first time a lot of things were canceled. A lot of things were shut down. A lot of expectations were, things were just not happening. Uh-huh. And so inadvertently when things are stripped away, all the other stuff comes out, right? So kind of like music, I couldn't really help facing my grief, but I was Given that silver lining, where I could actually um, go into it, because when you have grief, and especially with infertility, it's not a it's, it's not a very obvious thing to people. A lot of people don't know you have this deep inner pain, or that you have pain, and you need to function in normal society. You need to have conversations with people. I mean, this is how babies come into the world: is women get pregnant, and it's it's a fact of life. So I had to function in normal life, and I had learned how to do that. And not, not being fake, but just kind of like the realities of life. You can't always live in your grief, but because it had been so many years, right. I, I just had had to learn to live with it. And this was the first time I was able to really just kind of go there into a deep place of pain and, and, um, a deep place of, yeah, whether it was just actually lots of tears and lots of, because sometimes, You can't go into those tears. I mean, anybody who's had deep loss knows there's certain times where you're like, can't go there, can't do that right now. It's actually, I can't then speak for hours or I can't then get myself back out of it, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's some certain things about, I mean, some griefs acutely at the beginning, you know, you can't help it and there's triggers and you'll just be there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it had been enough years for me that I had learned how to live with this unknown gray because I had no answers. And so... I had maybe coping mechanisms or ways just to live with it. It was a pain that I had, right? And so I could actually just go there and whether it meant that it induced tears or whether it meant that it whatever it made me physically do, you know. I I think that was a piece too, is just the physical pain. I don't know.
1: The physical pain.
0: Yeah. I I mean, with grief, there's physical pain. Right, of course, yeah. Right? Yeah. And and a lot of that physical pain. You can't always immerse yourself or go into, like, sitting with it fully, Mm -hmm. you know?
1: But you gave yourself permission during that time to go deep into it and feel it. Yeah. Like, obviously, that's a really hard thing to do. Like, we can go through our whole lives without. Yeah. Or attempt to go our whole lives without. Like, ultimately, grief will find us, but uh, we can...
0: Or opportunities are presented and we're like, nope, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I no, I'm good. Right? Because sometimes I think we are given these opportunities where we could go there. Yeah. It's just really scary. It is kind of scary, right? Because you do, there's a bit of a loss of control when you do let yourself face grief. Absolutely. And so I think that losing of control is scary because you do, like I said before, have to function sometimes in normal life. (laughs) Right? Um, And I think maybe that's where the, the gift of an opportunity to just dive in, right, is is presented to you to take it. And I I don't know, maybe we don't all do that. Maybe we don't take it or, or maybe we're not allowing space for some of those opportunities to present themselves to us, to go there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and one of the things that you mentioned that you did was shaving your head and, You know, like uh, I can actually remember Lenny Kravitz for some reason talking about (laughs) shaving his dreads and like the actual moment of it where he's like, my ex-wife was there, everybody was crying and the actual moment of it sounded super intense. How was the moment for you when you were doing it? Well,
0: oh man, it's another piece of the story that's so interesting. I haven't really shared it with many people because I had not talked to a soul about shaving my head besides mentioning to Dan, I kept having this dream. And that was it. I didn't talk to my family. I didn't talk to my best friends and say, what do you think? This is something I'm thinking. I didn't talk to a soul until the day it was done. And so that was what was so crazy is I'd had this thing that kept coming back to me. And I didn't know the key either because it had been so many years with infertility and no change and no answers. And so I had a friend who, um, well, I woke up one day, Dan was on a surf trip. I woke up one day and I, for some reason was like, oh, maybe today will be the day I shave my head. Like just weird. And I kind of laughed like, "Ah, uh, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. I just had this like barter system in my mind. It's so strange when you have this reoccurring thing that keeps coming to you and you're kind of pushing it down and bartering it away. Like, I don't know if that makes sense, but so I woke up and I was like, well, what is today? What is today? You know? And I looked and it was like June 24th or something. I don't even know. And it was like St. John the Baptist Day. I'm like, oh, so it is actually a day in the calendar of something. I'm like, well, what does that mean, St. John the Baptist? So I started looking into it. I'm like, oh, the story of St. John the Baptist is that his parents couldn't have kids. And (laughs) I know, his parents couldn't have kids. That's the whole story of this. And then John the Baptist comes in, and it's this epic story about John the Baptist. And I was like, whoa, okay, that's fascinating. Um, So I kind of ignored it a bit, but I'm like, that's a bit interesting. And then I, I remember just sitting on my phone and I'm just like buying time. Dan's away surfing. It's like Saturday morning or something. So then I'm looking and there was this weird pop-up like of a horoscope or something, which I don't click on these things ever. I, I don't. And I was like, well, what is this horoscope for the day? And it's like, do not do anything of significance today without the presence of a female uh some some other female to walk you through it or something and i was like oh, what is this, this is so weird and my friend popped into my mind who is a hairdresser she popped into my mind uh it's actually sherry and she popped into my mind and i was like oh, so weird okay put it away had a bunch of things planned my niece came over we listened to records and we visited and had this fun time i went to my mom's house and at one point sherry texts me out of nowhere and is like, hey, I'm happening to be driving close by your road. You know, I want to just pop in and say hi. I'm like, oh, I'm not home. And I had said to myself earlier, if she comes to my house today, maybe that's when I am like having this barter system. I don't even know why. It's this the weirdest thing. And so she had texted. I'm like, whoa, that's weird. And I kind of like dodged a bullet. I wasn't home, right? I'm like, weird. What a funny thing. So then uh, go to my mom's, visiting with people, start to head back. And um I think we stopped to to visit with somebody and then she was like, Oh, I'm going by again. And I'm like, I'm still not home, you know, whatever. I was like, wow, she's persistent. This is a bit weird. This is COVIDy times. Like nobody's popping into my house. Like, you know, even my niece, we hadn't hung out in such a long time and it was a big deal. And we hung out at my mom's on her deck outside. Like we were still all being really funny. And and so then later that evening, Sherry texted me again is like, hey, I'm I'm on my way to your house and I'm just like, what on earth? I'm on my way to your house. Cause I was just going back to grab something. I'm like, okay, I'm here. <laughs> so she comes over and she'd brought like a little bottle of wine and we're like kind of surfacy visiting being like, Hey, you know, cool, whatever. And then all of a sudden she's like, so what's, what's up? What's going on? And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, I all day have known I need to come to your house. And I'm like, What are you talking about? So then she's like, all day. I just couldn't. And I finally in the evening was like, guys, she said to her husband and her son, I got to go. I got to go see Shanda. I'm out. So she just came by. And so then I told her this whole story. I hadn't told anybody about the shaving the head thing. And I just said, honestly, this is what I'm, this keeps coming back to me, coming back to me. It's St. John the Baptist Day today. Like, what the heck? And so she was like, well, let's do it. What do you think? what do you think? Let's do it. I'm like, okay. And so by the time we got to the place that she'd already cut, and I had all these like, whoa, dodged a bullet. And then by the time she came, out, I was just like, okay, I can't even escape this. So she had a bottle of wine. We sat on the deck and she shaved my head and I didn't look in a mirror. I was like, I don't even want to look. I don't want to do anything. And she shaved my head. And then I kept a, pe- a clump of the hair in my hand and we walked down to the ocean and I jumped in like a little baptism and just kind of released my hair and... Came back to the house and I was like, well, Danny's got a surprise when he comes home because <laughs> he was away. And, and that was, the it was just such a crazy experience. And that moment was so amazing for me. I didn't, I didn't know it would be, right? I didn't know it would be a key, but it was a point in history I could move away from and find more healing. So it was extremely powerful. So we did that song, Seeing Stars, as the title of that whole entire album. And we recorded a music video with me shaving my head. And actually, I had started to grow it out. I had already been a year's worth of hair growth, which the growing out is very painful. And it was hard. It's painful. It was just like painful vanity wise. Okay,
1: gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. It was
0: just, a, it was hard. Like that, it's very, it was just a long process. And so when we came to the place of doing that video, I remember sitting with knowing the feeling of what it is to shave my head. I know now. For me, not for everybody. That was just what I experienced. It was very spiritually, And so we decided, I was like, I need to do it again for the video because this is the part that it's so significant. And so Charlie, our videographer just left the video camera with us overnight. And so Danny just recorded me in the bathroom. And he doesn't even put in the video, but I just was I started just like weeping. It was so hard just to go back there and know the significance of this key for my life. And um Danny filmed me shaving my head and that that's interspersed in the video because it's really a truly significant part
1: of the grief story.
0: <laughs> this is just crazy.
1: Wow, Uh, that's an incredible story about the day. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for letting me
0: go on this tangent. Oh, Oh so good. Uh,
1: Sherry-Ann heard the call.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, what the heck, hey?
1: Yeah, wow, that's that's amazing. Uh, And even when
0: I watch it, Dan and I both just get like, my throat tightens and it's because it's so significant. It's just truly significant in that video.
1: And so there's, when you talked about, afterwards as well too so you're you're moving away from the grief a little bit by sort of um embracing an action to like give some sort of like a definitive marker and then like i also want to talk a little bit about walking through the world as a woman with a shaved head (laughs) what was that like
0: fascinating social experiment yeah firstly um purely vein wise, I have a nice shaped head. I had no idea. So (laughs) that's a really nice bonus because going into it, Chris, I was like, wow, this is going to be horrible, really unattractive and I'm okay with it. Like I just had surrendered to this process of like, okay, you know, whatever. I'm not going to like it. It's fine. And I loved it. I was so, f- it was very fascinating. I loved my shaved head. I actually have a nice shaped head. Who knew? So that helps because some people are like, no, I literally have a cone head. If you shave my head, it's not nice. So I, I, that was a, an added little bonus. Um, but it was very interesting to, firstly, because I had taken time off work to do the course that was canceled. So then I had people thinking I had cancer. And being very concerned, right? Because all of a sudden you have this 10 years of hair growth in your shaved head. It's right. jarring for people. Yeah. And it is triggering even for people who have had cancer, who haven't had a choice in getting rid of their hair. So that was such an amazing experience for me. I'm like, right, I could choose this. Some people didn't get a choice. They lost their hair. And it is super grieving. And- and just like that process of what a shaved head triggers for people if they're not prepared for it or whatever. Um, also just feminine, masculine, like, you know, that kind of thing was, was fascinating. The interactions with some men, you know, Danny would send me into the parts store, wherever. And I remember in the past being like, please stop talking to me. I would just like to get a part, you know? And then when I had my shaved head, like a lot, a lot of the time, nobody even talked to me, gave me the time of day. And I was like, this is awesome. I could kind of hide. It was kind of nice. There was elements of that that were really lovely. Like I felt like I just, I felt really vulnerable at times. So even at the very beginning, I would get a bit teary eyed. I just felt so soft and tender. And I had been very, like you said, resilience is something that has been a threat in my life from past things that have gone, you know, just a lot of stuff. But I was able, I was really softened by that vulnerability, shaving my head. And it was very much, and I, had, I wrote down this quote to remember, because Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, grief must be witnessed to be healed. And it was kind of the first time Anybody visibly was like, what's going on with Shanda? Like something happened. You just shaved your head. Mm. So it was a bit of a conversation starter and people were curious. And I had to share a little bit about maybe infertility for the first time in a long time, because I didn't always tell people. People closest to me knew most people didn't Mm -hmm. know that that was our journey for those many years, right? And so it was kind of open to conversation and it was me being vulnerable. And I remember a couple of times even being like, Dan, will you come to the driftwood with me and just be with me? Because I felt really vulnerable, really soft, quite tender. And it was lovely. Like it was a neat experience. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so having those conversations with people, because for sure, right? People see you with a shaved head, it's going to be a topic of conversation, right? And then that would lead into sometimes talking about the infertility So how did you find that having those conversations with people in general, like like a relief or a chore or like anything else? I don't know. How did they wind up feeling? I,
0: I think it was a mix of both. In that you you know, I, I mean, it's hard when you find yourself in a place that you don't want to be because you're like, yeah, I didn't necessarily choose that that I couldn't have kids or that, you know, I just like this was, it was so hard. And so in a lot of ways, when you find yourself in a place that you didn't choose, it's hard to talk about it and to keep going back to it. But it also is so cathartic to talk about it because you're like, it's such a huge part of my life. So, you know, when people ask, it actually was nice to be able to talk about it, you know? Uh-huh. And and I think the album came out and then people were like, whoa, because a lot of people saw the video and they're like, I had no idea, <laughs> like, this was your journey. So that was very vulnerable for us even, right? So it's like the shaved head and then releasing the album with those music videos, visuals for people to see what we had been through. It was very vulnerable, you know? And so that had already opened up a dialogue and then it was more like, okay, this is our journey. This is where we find ourselves, you know? And maybe it was freeing. It was like, okay, here it is. This is a bit of my story, you know, 10 year story or whatever.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to be really sensitive about this because the fact that you got pregnant and then had a miscarriage was probably incredibly devastating, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, it was. It was honestly um, kind of inexpressible, the pain. It was also so strange because I was right in the middle of this album. So I also was so in touch with my heart and it was just like... um, yeah, what a strange thing to go through while I'm in the process of moving on from this to get pregnant and have a miscarriage. Like it was just so bizarre and unimaginable. And I think it just f- fueled a bit more of maybe the power behind the album and why it matters to me so much because I can hear it in some of the singing. It's in there, <laughs> you know? And this is the thing about art and about anything you do it's like a real book versus reading a book on your computer, you know, like the essence of the people that have read it and touched it. And like, you just really can't deny it. And we want to, I mean, science is maybe catching up to explain some of those things, right? Like quantum physics or whatever it is. Like we don't know all the things about the essence of people and, and, and the presence of people and stuff. And so when you watch something that has a deeper thing that's happened, You don't really know all the layers, but you're moved by it. You're like, whoa, I don't know why. but And maybe a similar video of something else doesn't have the same feeling. Or maybe there's an experience when you listen to these songs. And I'm like, because there's actually just fragments of real hard-lived stuff that happened at the exact time. Mm. And you can't really fake that. And you can't really. And maybe people will feel it. Maybe they won't. You know, for me, the coolest part is I feel that in this project that we did. Amazing. Really? Like (laughs) I, I, I can't
1: help but say thank you so much for such a beautiful articulation Mm -hmm. of your experience with creation and especially with speaking about grief. (sighs) You did an amazing job explaining that. And I I know we're just, we're just touching the edges of it right Mm -hmm. now and that there's so much more that could be said, but, uh, yeah that's really profound. So many things you just said in the last 15 or 20 minutes or so. And I think, uh, I think people are going to be able to hear a little bit of their own story within what you said.
0: And it's interesting. I wanted to read one little quote, Chris, if you let me.
1: Oh, of course. And it's at the
0: beginning of our video. And it was from this person who had written a book who had lost catastrophically his wife, his mom, and two of his children in a car accident. And the book I resonated with was the grief portion of it. And I remember him saying, you know, it's interesting, you end up, it's kind of the two worlds where you can be a celebrity for your grief almost, and you don't want that. Or, you know, maybe you feel you don't have a great enough grief, you know, and it never gets acknowledged, right? And both are important, significant pieces, because he's like, if you stay in your grief of being like, well, You know, not to the degree that this man has suffered, but I felt like sometimes I'd be like, yeah, 11 years, you'd say it and people would be like, oh shit. (laughs) Like, I didn't know anybody that had had that long or had done. I just didn't know. And it's like a bit of a weird thing. Sometimes people are like, whoa, like literally 11 years, you did all those things in tried you know, and so you don't, that you can stay there and you can also stay a victim, right? In that place. Or if you have some grief that you've experienced and maybe you don't see it as that extreme, But that grief matters and that loss matters, right? Like you can't do the comparative thing and otherwise then the person on the other end comes out on the losing end and they are not acknowledged in their pain. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like the two are so important with the sides of this coin. Right. And I, and in that same book, This man, he said, the quickest way for anyone to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west, chasing after the setting sun, but to head east, plunging into the darkness until you come to the sunrise. Hmm. And that always impacted me because it was like, sometimes you just got to go into that deep place and then you'll come out the other side. But it's really painful, (laughs) you know, it's really painful, but you also can't stay there forever. It's painful, but you could stay in a perpetual state of victimhood as well, right? And that would be something that I have really fought to do, is to come out the other side. Yeah.
1: Well, let's go there and let's come out the other side because, uh, as we mentioned in the very beginning of this interview, you are pregnant right now. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: I know. It's so crazy. So uh, (laughs) exactly one year after releasing the album, um, we decided to play our final card of IVF. And so we... And sorry, what is IVF? Uh, IVF is in vitro fertilization. Okay, excuse me, So thank the you. most invasive, awful fertility path you can take, basically. And it was right after my 40th birthday. And I just came to the place of realization I had done, even after telling you all these things, Chris, and going through all this working through of my grief and shaving my head and making this album... I still, in my deepest being, was like, we have one more card to play and we, let's just do it and nothing else has worked. So it's probably not going to work either, but let's just do it. We really honestly felt we should play that card. And it was months of medication, self-injecting, needles. I had seven alarms on my phone. We called it, what did we call it? P-A-P-T-S-D, phone alarm, P T S D. (laughs) Had seven alarms on my phone each day from things I needed to do from medication to needles to injections. Danny gave me injections in my butt with big needle. Yeah, it was so intense, one of the most intense experiences I've ever been through. But again, it's that resilience of digging in and being like, I can close this chapter because of this grief being this linear thing. I would really actually like to either close it and just move on my path, you know? And um I mean, it's the most powerful thing I've ever done. And it worked the first time, being 40, which the statistics are 7%.
1: Wow, really? (laughs) That low? That low. Okay.
0: 7%. And so very first time, it's just crazy. And so we're still like in this state of bliss, you know, but also it's been such a journey. I mean, I still had to do injections for the first 10 weeks of my pregnancy. And and, yeah, totally, injections and medications and things. So it's like I have been high risk. I've done all this path, you know, the markers of getting past the first time we miscarried, like the seven and a half week mark, the eight week mark, and then getting past this point of development and then this point. And there's been so many pieces to this that have been um, incredibly tedious. Mm. And now I'm almost into my seventh month. So literally... It's just amazing. I feel amazing. I'm you're catching me like we said at the beginning. You're catching me in the right in the in betweeners. I'm not ill. I was so ill at the beginning. I'm not ill and I'm not too giant and large and uh summer sausage feet and hands that I, I'm sleeping great right now. So I'm like right in the middle honeymoon.
1: Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So man, I'm just so appreciative of you sharing all these things because I'd like to think that I'm pretty uh open and sensitive to women's issues but I have no idea (laughs) I I don't know you know like I try to imagine but my imagination I think falls incredibly short but just what you're describing and even from Dan's point of view as well too and like is a struggle for both of you (laughs) and yeah you know like 11 years is a long time and a lot of a lot of emotion, and yeah, I'm sure like so many different feelings coming up through there. And
0: uh, the depth of an, a shared experience like that, the statistics aren't great for marriage, right? Uh, <laughs> like each year of infertility, and I mean, uh, like I don't really know anybody that's ten, eleven years in and still married. And because of the statistics of divorce, or it's just so hard. Yeah, it's really hard because it's a silent grief, first off you know, not everybody knows you're going through that maybe you don't want anyone to know or whatever, right? And it's primal in the sense that if that's something you have wanted or felt was your calling, right? Because some people, that's not what they feel or they're calling at all in life. And I have, I think that's the most amazing thing. I remember meeting people that knew that and I'm like, what a great thing. You know that, like how awesome the wasted energy that you would give to something, right? Because I've just, a lot of wasted energy because of the pain, not wasted, but just. You know that's something so deeply in me that I couldn't move past, and so for Dan and I, like that, that shared experience- I mean we just are deeper, and I think part of it, I honestly think our tower kind of fed into that because we spent so much time together, right? We had four years of seven month periods of being in the forest together, mm-hmm. and then we lived in a closet, a hundred square foot house, right, and then we moved into our house and have built this together, and then now we're experiencing. We're pregnant and we're going to, you know, be parents. And honestly, I think that has made us so close because we've spent so much time facing each other and we couldn't really get away and not in a bad way. We didn't want to, but often when there's no distractions and all of that's taken away, you just truly either you get deeper together or you grow apart. Like there's just kind of no between area. If you're going to be living that intimately close physically You know, but also just going through something so intense, right?
1: Yeah. I would imagine being able to communicate well is really high on the list of reasons why things play. Or just communicating
0: at all. Yeah, right. (laughs) Honestly, right? Just communicating. That's the first key. If you can just communicate. And then on top of it, you're right. Danny's such an incredible communicator with me. And through all this stuff, we have been able to still communicate. Which matters. And that's the thing that I think has saved
1: us. (laughs) So from, you know, this experience, because we we change as we age and we go through different uh, experiences in our lives. How do you think this experience has changed you in terms of how you perceive the world, perceive your life, Mm -hmm. and perceive other people going through this challenge for, you know, over a decade? Because you sound very optimistic and positive about things and you don't have to be that way right <laughs> like and, yeah and so uh how do you how do you think that this is uh this experience has like, impacted how you perceive the world and other people
0: i feel like a practice that i have worked really hard at is not to be bitter and that's something i've actually had to work at as a practice because there's so many times that I could have been bitter or that I have. I've even gone down those paths a little bit, bitter and just resentful or pain, right? And I've seen it and I'm like, oh, I can't stay there. I can't stay there. It's exhausting. It's actually so exhausting to nurture bitterness. Mm-hmm. It takes everything from you and it requires so much maintenance, you know? So I just was like, I'm I'm going to choose to not be bitter. And I feel like, you know, like in my own life, prayer and a a spiritual aspect to my life has been sort of a, a, an anchor. Um, But everybody has some sort of, not everyone, but I would say people who choose to have some sort of spiritual anchor or whatever, that's a huge help in grief and for fighting bitterness. I think also the compassion that I have, if I know somebody has a hidden deep pain or something that they don't maybe get, I mean, mental health is another one it's not obvious, right? So you don't maybe get all the resources or you don't get all the attention or you don't get all the comfort that someone would who has a physical injury that everyone sees, right? So I have a lot of compassion in that way for those hidden things, the pain, and maybe just a tenderness. And I've had people over the years that I know have had their own pain and the way that they have comforted me or been gentle to me, I'm like, you get it. There's just a difference in that tenderness. Mm and the way that they have just been kind, you know? And I think even meeting people who've done IVF, I'm like, oh, you have? Like, I just have such a different, you know, people would say, I've done IVF. And now I understand. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) How are you doing? Right?
1: Yeah. Like,
0: did you have a mental breakdown? You know, because it's just the craziest, hardest thing. But then also to get to that journey, obviously, most of the time, They've already gone through years and years of infertility, right? So then there's that pain on top of it. So it's just a bit of a, I have an awareness of what that means when someone says it. I'm like, "Uh, yeah, that's loaded. Mm. So much compassion. And even infertility, maybe they didn't do IVF or just the loss of that, if you had wanted to have children, the pain of that, right? Um, The primal pain, because this is how people come into the world. It's primal. It Mm. is. And so the depth of that is hard to explain for people. Unless you've gone through it or that's been your story, right? So I I think I just have so much more compassion to the depth of that. I even have an aunt who never had kids and I have such an understanding of her now. And I'm like, wow, just a a, there's a kindness there that I'm like, I get it. I get some of the things (laughs) that I didn't get as a kid, you know? Mm -hmm. I think it's just compassion and, and maybe a tenderness to people when you don't really know what's fully going on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what a big part of this show is about, is really getting to understand people and their particular life experiences. And if people want to share some harder truths about their lives, I really think it gives us an amazing opportunity to be empathetic mm-hmm. and to see the world through that person's eyes a little bit better and uh, be be more compassionate. Because, I mean, it seems like there's an infinite amount of – uh of room for compassion in our world, right? I, and like, just
0: that we don't know, right? That's what's fascinating. We can have an idea of somebody and we just don't know.
1: No, we, we <laughs> just don't know. And you just describing the, the, the seven alarms on the clock and injections, <laughs> like, it's just such a like a vague idea, vague idea mm-hmm. of what you're saying. I'm like, that sounds like a lot, but I'm <laughs> sure I'm sure the actual truth of it was like even way more than a lot. Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, Pretty cool that it's, it's at the point that you're at right now where, you know, your, your child is going to be due September 1st. yeah, where where do we go from here? What is there anything else that uh, you wanted to talk about that um, we didn't? Actually, sorry. Here's a question I forgot yeah. to ask you because uh, we're talking about you being a mother, and I asked about your dad. What is your mother's first name?
0: Uh-huh. Sue Suzanne. Sue. Yeah, Bob okay. and Suzanne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they paved the way. If my parents hadn't come to Pender from Alberta, bought a sailboat and came, I mean, we wouldn't be here. They, they were the ones who came, we came after them. My brother and sister-in-law are here now with my three nieces. Like, it's just so amazing. And my mom sometimes is like, in my wildest dreams, did I ever imagine that all my kids would live on Pender Island, <laughs> right? It's not a lot of people have their family here. That's They live here and they just wish their family would be here. But my family is here. So it's such a gift.
1: It is. And so you have a brother and his name is? Bobby. Yeah, Bobby. And so then they have how many kids?
0: Three, three girls. So Bob and Lynette. And uh, the three girls, Katie, Tia, and Natty.
1: Yeah. So you guys are uh, surrounded by support.
0: I know. It's yeah. honestly incredible. And we joke because there hasn't been a baby in our side of the family for 15 years. So everybody's really excited. And Dan's family, you know, there's nine grandkids under nine, I think, or something like that. So they, they, all of his entire family lives in Edmonton. They all live within. I want to say a half an hour radius of each other, yeah. Dan's the only one who's come out west, and so it's kind of neat that my family is here for us to have a little bit of that support because I know that's hard to not be with his family and to be having kids, sure so i th- I think we feel pretty blessed to have yeah. some family around. It's incredible, yeah.
1: yeah, um, but yeah, is there anything else that like um uh, like we'll we'll do like a slow wrap up, but um is... well, I was
0: reminiscing today, thinking Chris talking with you i I've always loved visiting with you in these moments where we'll be on Pender or whatever, because you're not a serial space filler of conversation. You sometimes will just sit, and that's hard for me. So I love that about you. And I was so excited to have this conversation with you just because of that fact that you listen, you listen and you ask questions and you have these deep moments that create an opportunity to share a little deeper what, you know, even today getting to talk to you about this. I mean, I'm not diving into all these things with the average person I talk to on Pender, right? So to just have this opportunity feels so, it feels really lovely. And I was also reminiscing about the towers and just a tower experience and, and the animals and all the things, you know, kind of how that, that formative part of me and thinking about you and Genova. And I just love that connection that we've always had. Anytime we want to talk about it, we're like, yes. You know, when you say, do you remember this about the tower? And we all get a little sobered and we're like, yes. And there's nobody else who understands. So similar to my compassion with grief and all those things, you guys understand when we talk about our tower days, there's no one else who gets it. There's nobody else who gets it to the same degree. And that is such a gift to Dan and I. It's just rad. It's rad that you get it.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. What you said today, it actually really brought up, stirred up a lot of memories when you were speaking about it for me. Memories I haven't had in a while because I haven't hmm. really thought about it. it. It's been nine years since Jenna and I did that job, but um man, yeah. it was something special. It was really nice. It's so difficult, near impossible to explain to people yeah. how impactful and how just incredible of an experience it was to be by yourself and live out in the forest. And there was support. If anything went wrong, Mm -hmm. you could like make a phone call and like they would fly a helicopter out and come to the rescue, but not when it was dark, when it was dark, you're out (laughs) there by yourself. And, um, it was, it was such an intense soft experience Mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah. It was really, really a lovely experience doing that what what do you have in mind for your child coming into the world what are you looking forward to sharing with your childs uh and uh and, and teaching your child? have you been thinking mm-hmm. about that have you been putting thought into that
0: yeah i think it's so fascinating to actually be here and to be able to allow myself to just think about that and have it be real instead of be painful you know instead of be the loss of that opportunity or whatever so um i i think The biggest thing I'm so grateful for is to be on Pender, to be able to have kids on Pender. Just such a wonderfully different experience. I feel like there's a little bit of a longer prolonging of childhood maybe and in a sense with some of the kids getting to, I don't know, I loved it when my nieces were here and they were younger. I remember it was like, it's totally cool to buy a new to you gift uh, for your friends and bring it to a birthday party. Like it's not, not cool, you know? And I'm like, I love that. I love that culture. And there's just so many things that I feel really excited about experiencing on Pender and the nature that that feeds my soul. I live in the forest. we built a house that looks like a fire tower, <laughs> not not totally, but basically um so i I can't wait for them to be a part of that experience, but I realize one of the biggest things through this whole pregnancy has been not putting any expectations on this little life that had no choice in the matter and doesn't know eleven years of infertility. Right. So I'm very much, I'm working on the practice of you're not solving a problem. You're not coming into the world with the weight of this, like you are, our everything. You're not our everything. We are a family, you know, you're a member of our family. and, And this is a soul that we have the opportunity to nurture and be responsible for, you know, but we have no ownership over this soul and it's just such an amazing thing to release that expectations and pressure and all those things from 11 years of wanting right um that can be a lot for a little life so that's what we're working on right now it's just like that's all there kind of moving past that that'll be a conversation we have of course with our child or children hopefully you know but we definitely want them to just be
1: free <laughs> that's amazing. Wow. I, I don't think I would have imagined that that way. Um, i just trying to find the most appropriate words right now. I think that's mm-hmm. really, really wise what you just mm-hmm. said. Thanks Chris. S- super cool. <laughs> Anything else? Any last words you want to end off with for uh, the people of Pender and other people listening outside of our little Island?
0: Oh man. Thanks for letting me talk. And uh, thanks for just going with me on these threads of thought and, and sort of ideas. And hopefully it makes sense. But yeah, I just feel like it's an honor that I can talk about it. And it feels really cathartic to talk to you about it in such a sweeping way. I haven't really done that. Where from the beginning, you know, talking about being a kid and and being in the forest and just how that fed into so many of these identities and music. And and, um, because a lot of people have even asked me about, like, are you playing music to your kid? And I'm like, I'm not really <laughs> like I feel almost guilty. And we're playing music, obviously, but I'm not like so intensely devoted to that, which is funny. Cause again, it's my identity. I have so many parts and facets to me. And it's one part. Um, it's been coming up a little bit more lately, actually. And I think maybe it's because this child's ears are developed now and they can hear. <laughs> and so they can actually hear stuff now. So it's sort of on my it's on my radar suddenly. I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. I wanna I want to think a bit more about that, how I can incorporate my music or what I want that to look like even before they're born. So maybe that'll be my next chapter is uh, reporting back to all the new songs I write between now and when I give birth. <laughs> oh,
1: that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for doing this, Shandon. Thanks, Chris. All right. That was wonderful. All right. We're done. We're done.
0: Thanks, Chris. That was Uh, just lovely. Yeah, it
1: was pretty lovely. That was really great. Thank you. Oh boy, wasn't that great. I really, really enjoyed speaking with Shanda and I hope you enjoyed that as well too. That was super fun for me to get to reminisce about those tower years. So thank you again to Shanda for doing that interview. It was a long time in the making and it seems as if when these interviews are meant to happen, they're meant to happen. I want to thank Ben McConkie for providing the theme music for this podcast. And if you are at all interested in getting your own personalized audio memoir done, again, you can reach me at myaudiomemoir at outlook.com. And I'd be more than happy to answer any questions that you have. There is a link for that in the show notes. And last but not least, I want to thank you for showing up and listening to this. So thank you. And until next time.